0: blog talk radio
1: fans everywhere my name is michael acolin also known as the brooklyn trolley blogger and on behalf of my partners i welcome you back to a Metsian podcast uh tonight are we're, tra- we're going to try to make this as brief as possible series wrap up talk about the three games and the three games only uh so in order to get that done i'm going to bring on my partner unfortunately our other partner rich will
0: not be with us tonight but sam is indeed with us hello sam Hello, Mike. Uh, we've been talking a lot about 1962 recently, and it feels as if this entire series sums up the, the plight of the New York Mets over the course of their 58, is it 58 now? 58-year 58 season, of course, and uh, there, there's a lot to talk about regarding that, but, but uh, it, you know, there, the Wilpons are all over the place when it comes to the narrative of, of what we're dealing with right now. And uh, it could go either way. We could have one of those underdog seasons that Jeff likes to talk about, or this could be a ridiculously ugly death knell. This is indeed
1: the 58th season of New York Metropolitan Baseball. And there's somebody who joins us tonight uh, who does just a fantastic job of presenting Mets past, present, uh, and, and just everything amazing about them. He's John Struble. We might know him as Mets Rewind on Twitter. But, John, welcome to the show. Please, I know Portion is only one layer of your endeavors. Fill us in, and by all means, and please do, tell us how you've been uh, enduring and, and surviving through the pandemic. Hold on. We got a technical difficulty here, Sam.
0: Uh, we got him. there.
2: Hello? <laughs> yeah, hello. We got
0: the pitch off, guys. We got the pitch off. All right. <laughs> so, uh, I'll
1: just pick up where I left off. Uh, John Struble, everyone. Uh, you might know him as Mets Rewind on Twitter, but that's only one layer of his endeavors. John, spill uh in on, on, you know, the rest of those layers for Mets Rewind. But above all, Tell us how you've been enduring the pandemic and how you've been,
2: sir. Sure. I just want to first say thanks to, to you, Michael, and uh, Sam, and give Rich my best. It's an honor to be on the show with both of you guys. And, uh, yeah, our family is doing well during the pandemic. Um have not had any personal experience with COVID, but obviously friends and family and extended family, uh, uh, we've seen it happen around us to um, – Light, light um, versions of it to the most severe, which is death. And uh, it's been a really, really different time. It's, um, the world is kind of on its head right now, but I'm doing well, and it sounds like both of you guys are doing well. So it's a great opportunity to talk to you, and I appreciate you having me on.
1: Uh, we love having you back on. It's
2: been too long.
1: Uh, and, you know, here we are. We're just chugging right along. Uh, There are those of us who who know people who suffered and even, you know, passed away through this pandemic. And uh, I just want to remind everyone here at the Metium Podcast, our hearts go out to you, our sympathies and our empathies as well. So let's talk baseball. It's the opening uh, weekend of the 2020 season, the compromised 2020 season. Lots to talk about. We want to try to get it done as quickly as possible. It's late. It's Sunday night. People got to get to work tomorrow. So let's just jump right in. I call this the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, And (laughs) let us start, obviously, with the good. Uh, Jacob deGrom, his performance in game one. Steven Matz, his performance in game two. Uh, After two seasons, the ONA Cespedes returns and hits a home run. All of this takes place, minus Matz, of course in Game 1, a rather good day. So let's discuss that and that only. Game 1, John, take it away.
2: Yeah, Game 1 was a delight to watch and just what you expected from uh, Jacob deGrom. Um, Initially, when I was watching the game, I I had thought, um, wow, they, they pulled the plug on Jake pretty quickly and you start to get concerned whether he was not having back stiffness again or um, maybe it was just pitch count. I think he threw 72 pitches in the game, but uh, he was fantastic to watch. And then to see Ioannis Cespedes, uh step up to the plate and uh, give us that eventual game winning home run was, uh, you know, reminiscent of 2015 and what he could do when he carried the ball club. And, um, yeah, it was a great start to the season, but the last two nights, their uh, last two days, have been uh, quite a turnaround for us. Terrible, terrible. Sam, let's
1: stick with the good. I'm going to continue throwing Mm. the stats out there. You guys just react. Jacob DeGrom, five innings pitched, one hit, no runs, one walk, eight strikeouts. Uh, Steven Matz, in game two, six innings, two hits, one run, one walk, seven strikeouts. Steven Matz, it's imperative that he uh, become that second big starter for the Mets. I mean, the Mets need a one-two punch uh, and the Mets' present condition uh, necessitates that Mets step into that role. Pick up with those two guys and uh, assess his home run if you dare.
0: You know, it could be, weirdly enough, um, Jacob DeGrom could get better as he ages um, because he's such a smart pitcher that he might even be able to fine-tune so well uh, that once he does have diminished velocity, which he doesn't seem to have right now, um, coming out of the gate at least, uh, you know, we, maybe that's one of the things, you know, that, that's one of the stories. Is how long can Jacob Gram go with being historically dominant? Uh, with Matt, we've always known it was there, and we've just been waiting for it to be bottled up consistently, uh, and, and yesterday was exactly what you want out of Stephen Um, you know, the one mistake notwithstanding, of course. But but that uh, that's where the offense needs to come through a little bit more. And of course, we're we're going to get into that a little deeper. But you know, they only have a two to one lead in the ninth inning. That certainly didn't help. But uh, when it comes to the, the the top two starters we currently have, without Noah Syndergaard or Marcus Stroman out there, uh, Steven Matz, you know, and, and this is what, this is what moments like this are made for. Cause it sounds like we're not exactly sure when Stroman could be coming back, which, you know, as we know in, in the era of the Ponds, as I alluded to, um, he could get the Lowry treatment for all we're, we're concerned. And of course the joke will be that they didn't even have these 60 games to evaluate Stroman. And now he's gone as a free agent. So uh, like, The the entire – talking the good, because we have a lot of bad and ugly to talk about, Um, you know, DeGrom is just settling in to being so sharp, and it's the mental side of of that. And with Matt, we've been waiting for the mental side to come around, because that's what a lot of people think gets in his own way, is that he gets a little too wound up when things are going wrong and is too upset with himself. Uh, that, that he's needed to kind of just take those deep breaths. And I always go to, to when Matt Harvey was his best. That first game, uh, the only time that he ever got into any jam was the fifth inning. But he, he had the bases loaded no outs and got out of it. And that became, in that first year, Matt Harvey's mantra. He never wavered whenever there were runners on. He always buckled down under the pressure. Uh, Matt Harvey at his best. And that's what we've been, we've been wanting out of Stephen Matz, um, and, and boy would it be just humongous, especially with what our concerns about this ball club. If Stephen Matz could step up and be that number two behind Jacob Degrom, twenty nine years old now,
1: uh, the time is now. So let's see, let's hope, and uh, wish that everything turns out well. Let's transition into the bat, unfortunately. Uh, and Sam, we will dedicate a, a round to the offense specifically, but for the moment, the bad, game two. Uh, Things were going okay, and after that, uh, Luis Rojas positioned everything very nicely through the first eight innings. I give him credit for that. But, of course, there's the fatal pitch delivered by Edwin Diaz. Now, I've made two lists, and this incorporates game two and three. The bullpen, there's the good. Lugo, Familia, Wilson, Batantis, Drew Smith, and then there's the bad list. Diaz, Hunter Strickland, Corey Oswalt, Paul Seawolf. Of course, that encompasses the last two games. But let's focus on game two and that meltdown. Because, Sam, you saw the tweet, and I said that pitch was belt high and flat and just begging to be hit the other way. Pick it up, Sam.
0: If you're really thinking that pitch is going to get over for a strike and be the last pitch of the game, because there were two strikes, uh, then you have another thing coming. We, we, I was ranting before we, we got started, and I think I'm going to say this a little bit more subdued, is that there seems to be – everybody was like, he made his pitch. He made his pitch. and uh, And they were also talking about that's exactly where – the pitch was supposed to be. Well, maybe the pitch shouldn't have been there. And I'm, I'm going to pull up the game because I'm kind of curious since I was listening to the game and I wasn't watching it. I'm curious as to what the, the breakdown of, of the, pitch, the pitch sequence was. Um, because I feel as if wherever it was, I mean, you could either waste the pitch, which no people still obviously do, but it, it seems to be maybe he, got, he gets a little too wound up in the moment. And, you know, there just seems to be a con- what, what is consistently going wrong for Edwin Diaz. Everybody likes to say, oh, we got his stuff back now. Uh, that was just one pitch. But this, it keeps being just one pitch for Edwin Diaz, as if at some point, and, and you know, nobody's going to be perfect, but at some point in the moment, he loses the focus. He loses the urgency. Um, and, and, and again, again, this is all just like speculation, me trying to figure out what's going wrong. You know, he turned around and he smiled and, and got the pitch back. And, and I understand what he's trying to do there, but the optics just, just look bad. You know, he's just trying to move on, not be upset, and and get on with his pitching life in, in, with, with the New York Mets. But specifically, and I'm going to pull it up right now with the ninth inning. Let's see if I can get that. There we go. All right. So, first of all, he, he, Ozuna owned the, the, at bat because the first three pitches were balls, bottom line. But then he was able to get a called strike and then was able to get a swinging strike on a slider after the last one was a fastball. And then he, so obviously he doesn't have a waste pitch. So, there, there, there's that. He can't waste a pitch. So, Mike, I'll go back to you on here. We're talking about how hittable of a pitch that is. What do you do in that situation? From if you are, it, you know, if you, Mike wants the pitcher, and from who, whoever you want to you take in terms of historically the, the best Mets to ever pitch this game, who, what would you do and what would they do? What do you think they would do? Oh, boy, Sam, wow, that's
1: a loaded question. Uh, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, therefore, I will hand that over to John. But before I do, I will set you up this way. Of course, you got the same question at hand, but Edwin Diaz last year gives up 15 home runs in the ninth inning. He pitches 58 innings for the Mets last season. If you include these two games, he's now up to 60 innings pitch as a Mets giving up 16 home runs all in the ninth inning. Uh, the smile, laughing thing, I don't care about that. That's just a, a psychological defense mechanism, and it manifests different differently in different people. doesn't bother me. Uh, but this is a 60-game season we're talking about. So you have to manage this, I guess, in the micro sense. At what point does Luis Rojas rethink this strategy because Diaz has proven over and over again to be ineffective in the ninth inning role. And there's other people
2: that can share this load. So take it away, John. Yeah, you make some interesting points there, Mike. And uh, I agree with you. I, you know, going into this season, I asked myself the question, what has Edwin Diaz shown in the very short window that we had of what was spring training and I didn't see basically any of the inter-squad games in what they called summer camp, but what did Edwin Diaz show Luis Rojas that he had figured it out and could handle that ninth inning situation and get the batter out? Because yes, relief pitchers closers are going to give up ninth inning homers. So the majority of those home runs coming in the ninth inning, 15 or 16 home runs, you said, um, you know, he's going to give up some home runs, but it was just, it seemed like it was happening almost every other game early in the early part of last season. And I didn't think he did anything to prove himself even toward the end of the season to continue in the closing role. Now, when Seth Lugo came in and started to finish out games, he proved that he could slam the door for the most part and get the job done. I I thought Lugo should be in that role going into this season. So I had some concern with Diaz because I didn't think he really showed anything to improve himself. And going into a high-leverage situation in that second game, It didn't surprise me that he gave up another home run, and that's unfortunate that, um, you know, it should surprise me that he would give up a home run. As far as putting the pitch where he did, what that says to me is there is a confidence level in Edwin Diaz that he believes his stuff is good enough to get an Ozuna out on a 3-2 pitch without wasting one and putting a runner on and attacking the next batter. He came back from three, and know, got it to three and two. And he thought he could just be the same guy that he was two years ago in Seattle. And he trusted his stuff. And again, his web, for whatever reason it is, I don't know if it's obviously pitch location, but his stuff or his velocity or something, he's not fooling anyone and they're hitting the ball out of the ballpark. And that's deeply concerning. In a 60-game season, losing two of three to the Braves to open the season, um, there's more stress and more pressure, I believe, now on all the teams in the league to um, play at a really high level in July and August because the games are more meaningful now during this time of the year. This is the start of the year. You know, and we're only going to have sixty games, so there has to be much more intensity to win these series, especially against your uh, in division rivals. So, I I, I don't I, I don't have the answer, but I I would have started the season with Seth Lugo in the bullpen myself, as far as uh, the closing role, and Edwin Diaz would have to work in lower leverage situations until he proved he could, um, you know. Do it well, like in a seventh inning or an eighth inning situation. So before, I mean, Mike, before, the-
0: before you take it, before you take it over here, and and I like what John just said about trusting his stuff. Well, I and this is where I think that there may be just a level across the board because I was see, I'm seeing this going all the way back to when Oliver Perez was pitching for the Mets. And and listen, maybe that's not the most appropriate player to to bring up, but after he left the Mets, he's made quite the career as a lefty specialist for himself. But if you look here, most usually up in the strike zone, up and in in the strike zone, if you can hit that spot where that strike is, Ozuna's most, more often than not not going to be able to turn on that, and he's probably going to get weak contact if he tries to to swing at it. And he's either, it's either going to get fouled or it's, be, it's going to be a, a, a grounder. Here's maybe the problem for Edwin Diaz right now is he's trying to strike everybody out. And like John just said, he's not fooling anybody. You, he needs to become a smarter pitcher if he's going to survive in New York, let alone the, the entire major league uh, situation. Well, I
1: would remind everyone of his ERA last year was 5.58, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but cycling back to this three-game series, the bullpen pitches 12 innings, allows – 16 hits, 10 runs, three walks, and strikes out 16. That number, 16 strikeouts, you take that with a grain of salt, it means nothing to me. The hits in innings pitched, that means something to me. Uh, so let us move on to the ugly. Obviously bullpen is part of the ugly, but the most ugliest part of today was Rick Purcell's uh, debut as the New York Met. Uh, again, we're in a situation where it's DeGrom and match and pray for rain. Mets pitching depth has already declared itself a problem. Sam, as you mentioned, we have no Stroman. Uh, Syndergaard is hurt. Wheeler is a member of the Phillies, you know, and we can blame that one on the front office and BBW, etc. So here we are. I was crossing my fingers for Porcello. Uh, Because I am a a Red Sox fan, and people from the 70s get to do that because interleague wasn't uh, a thing. (laughs) And I laugh. I say that in jest. Nevertheless, here we are, and we're at a point where we're over-reliant on the Porcellos and the Walkers who still have yet to pitch. So, John, what say you of two innings, two-plus innings of seven hits, seven runs, six earned?
2: And three walks yeah michael i'm I'm gonna give Rickello um a pass for this one game and this one game only. There are times where teams just go out and they're flat, and you've gotta get past this game really quick and move on to Boston. It's gonna be a long bus trip to um Fenway Park tomorrow, but um. I'm going to give him a pass, but for this one time, you know, he's pitching as a starter in New York. Um, it's his first game in front of the home crowd, and he just didn't have it together, but he has to correct that real quick. I think his next start will be indicative of what we'll see of Rick Porcello or not see of Rick Porcello moving into the future. The other wild card is can Michael Waka step up and be that third guy, does he have the ability to return to uh, the pitcher he was in years past in St. Louis and give them a three-man rotation, which is basically a playoff-type rotation over this last stretch run um, to try and get themselves into playoff position. I don't know. That remains to be seen. And like you said, Michael, I think in general, starting pitching is going to be – a challenge for them. There's also the wild card of Marcus Stroman too. So um, one of those three guys need to step up and step up quickly. You can't wait over a 30 day period for one of those guys to start to get it together. Someone needs to step up and step up quickly. So the Mets could start winning series. And I think that's going to be the important thing over a short 60 game season. It's winning series on a consistent basis what will put you in position postseason contender.
1: I'm so glad you said that because I'm going to have fun at the Mets'
2: expense. Uh,
1: winning series, uh, again, it's a 60-game series. They're 1-2. and two. They're winning 33% of their games. Boom, boom. Yep. All right, so Sam, you saw it. He couldn't even get out of the third inning. Rick Porcello, what, what, what? what say you?
0: Well, I heard it just to you know, for, for anybody okay. out there, just, just being specific, but the, um, I was really hoping that like, I was, as I was settling in there, you know, I was like, all right, he gave up two runs. But that's okay. I think if Rick Rossello can, can settle in here, you know, it, it, I was very optimistic, but then I think what I'm realizing as we're talking through this entire thing is what, where I was a little pessimistic as everybody was like, Hey, the Mets could be good where the Mets, and the Wilpons' way of doing things sets them up for major potential failure. The way everything is is set up to be, they have to. They they have to. Now we'll see how the, the Phillies had their own issues this weekend, of course. And they cannot. And, but this is a continuing issue with the Phillies: is that they can't beat the Marlins. Sounds familiar, right? Um, but when you have, you have the Braves, we're going to have to be facing the Yankees. The Toronto's coming up, uh, even though they're they're. Their entire thing in general is in flux, of course, but they're, they're not going to be a pushover. And it sounds like this Marlins team might not be a pushover either. And then we're going to have to deal with the Phillies. So there's so many different things uh, where the the way the Wilpons do things with these hoping that these Corey Oswalt's work out, and, and by the way, I don't think he's long for this team, and I think it's clear how can you even make an argument that he should be on the roster. Um, You know, I, I think the, that what the way the Wilpons can catch fire with their way of doing that underdog mentality, and you, you know, when you look at it, any time the the Wilpons have generally had a good winning season, especially the in terms of post, other than you know, outside of two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, where they collapsed at the end, include, I'm including two thousand six, um, they've generally only have these major Final post. Madoff. Anytime the Mets have been good, it's because of a final push at the end, where that underdog mentality that Jeff Wilpon wants to to get everybody wearing uh, uh, finally takes off, and they cannot. And, and but sometimes it doesn't work out like it did in two thousand, like it didn't in two thousand nineteen. So I think that, that that's where it's just. It, it. I guess you know, to devil's advocate though that could. Other than the fact that many playoff teams can uh, uh, make it, maybe that also helps. Where it looks like all is lost and gone, but then the Mets have that final push, and you know, in the second half of August and September. And but I, the way everything is, is, is the way it looks. The way everything has fallen into place. The pessimism that I, I, I'm never really vocal about about, you know, I, 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 don't, I never want to go into a season saying, you know, I don't think they really stand a chance. But when you look around the league and when you look at who they're going to have to face, games like this, as well as what happened in the Yankees series, even if it were spring, technically, it, it, it could continuously unfold for this team. And I think at that point, you're going to have to give Louis Rojas a, mull- a mulligan. You're listening to our
1: Metsian podcast. Uh, Weekend recap with our guest John Struble of Mets Rewind. Uh, we've just finished discussing. Uh, we've just finished discussing pitching, starting rotation thus far, and the bullpen. Let us now transition to hitting in this offense. Let me throw some numbers at, at you, and you jump in as you care. Atlanta Braves, three games, nineteen runs, twenty-eight hits. New York Mets. Five runs, 20 hits over three games.
0: Uh,
1: as a team, over the three games, they went 21 for 98. That equates to a 214 batting average. Uh, they managed just five walks in three games. I find that problematic. Uh, and this all comes against Atlanta starters Mike Soroka, uh, Max Freed, And Sean Newcomb, these guys are not the 1970 Baltimore Orioles. Uh, So, you know, I'm a little miffed at what I saw this weekend, tonight, last night, and the other
2: night. John, pick it up. Yeah. um, Mike, if you look at that lineup from top to bottom right now, I mean, you, you summarized it well, but Jeff McNeil is hitting 100. Pete Alonzo is hitting 091. Um, Robbie Cano is hitting 111. J.D. Davis is hitting 100. Ioannis Cespedes, despite his home run, is hitting 200. So nobody's really hitting. And again, I know this sounds like I'm standing on a soapbox or beating a drum, but the construct of the season does not allow for a team to have lulls in a sixty-game season, and if the Mets are going to get off to a slow start offensively, or pitching, or vice versa, they 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 give way to each other, and they have a lull hitting, then they have a lull in pitching. Um, it's going to it's going to unravel much quicker because it's a sixty-game construct. You have to think. I think of this season in a whole different way. And that, that I believe is a huge challenge for a rookie manager. He doesn't have the luxury of a 162 game season where he's working through some stuff and over a 10 game period, they may go five and five, but they could have gone seven and three and okay. We kind of worked our way through that. We're going to make some corrections and down the road that 5 and 5 will turn into a 7 and 3 at a future 10 game stretch. You go 5 and 5 <laughs> right now to start the season or 4 and 6 in a 60 game season, it's going to be really difficult and the Mets offense is just off to a jet overall a generally slow start. They're not hitting the ball. They had So many opportunities tonight, early on when the game was still within reach. Sean Newcomb, um, in a lot of ways, reminded me in his early pitching, the first two, three innings of that game, of Rick Ankeel um, 20 years ago when he couldn't get the ball over the plate. He was really wild and was having, right up to the time he left the game, was really having difficulty finding the plate. And the Mets gave him some gifts by swinging at pitches, that were out of the strike zone and could have been balled for, or um, and you know they they would hit the ball on the ground or whatever and get out of an inning or take away a run opportunity. So um, I just think they're not hitting well overall, and they need to correct that again very very quickly. And everybody needs to get um, kind of on track really quickly going into Boston.
1: i mean in- up a few jumps. Urgency does rule the day. Sixty game season. So Sam, you heard the numbers met so far. Almost the one hundred at bats. They're batting two fourteen to the team. They got got out scored nineteen to five.
0: So early impressions. Mike, um, there's one major difference in, in what I'm about to say to what what is usual. But tell me if you've heard this story before Mike. The Mets uh, have a chance to take an early-season series or even a late-season series uh, from a division rival. Um, They leave a few on in the late innings. Uh, And then up, you know, where they have the Braves against the wall or or any team against the wall, they manage to to battle. And then the floodgates unleash, and the offense that had been, you know, sputtering until that point uh, comes alive and finishes with the numbers that you just uttered about the Braves. Uh, The Mets are able to get away from the home crowd that probably was a little hostile at the end there uh, to a, let's say, a weaker team that's not really, you know, that people have not predicted is going to be all that good and and, and let's say it's in the middle of the season, isn't all that good anyway. Um, And it's an offensive park as well. And they're able to kind of, you know, not in front of the home, without the pressure of the hometown fans are able to loosen up and they, they go apeshit. Think about maybe uh, like, like a Philly series when the Phillies were bad and the Mets would go in there and just after a miserable home, home series, they go to town on the Philadelphia Phillies in uh, uh, citizens bank park. You've heard that story, right? So I do believe that I, I could see the Mets using Fenway park to come alive. From an offensive standpoint, that right now they just didn't have that moment, like the Braves had, the Marcelo Zuna moment, where the floodgates unleashed. Uh, they they haven't had that moment. It could have happened uh, in that first inning when they let Sean Newcomb off the hook, like John was alluding to. Um, but th- this is just this is what we continuously see. It's all and, and of course there's the whole Sunday thing that everybody factors in. The fact that they haven't been playing well over the, the course of A few years now on Sunday games, but it's always that second game. That's why that pitch is so important because it changes the dynamic of an entire season. And the again, like this, this is a team game we're talking about here. The offense left runners on at the end. There, they many many times they and. You can let Cespedes off the hook a little bit in terms of that first inning, because you know, other than the home run, and he does have the knack for the dramatic, doesn't he? Um, Cespedes' timing's clearly off, and and you'd expect that to be the case. Um, I think that with Fenway, they could they could certainly use Fenway. Uh, Pete Alonso, I I just I want to see just go to town on that place. I want him to hit like seven home runs up there. Um, But the the offense, you know, I I could go down the rabbit hole with everybody. Cano, McNeil, there's just nobody hitting right now. And somebody's going to have to step up. And right tonight it was uh, uh, Tomas Nito.
1: Sometimes they say hitting the road is the best thing, you know, uh, a cure for all ills. Very quickly, J.D. Davis, especially today, he was having some problems out in left field. Uh, he needs geometry class. He was taking bad angles on some fly balls. And the throwing if anyone noticed, was rather erratic as well. Uh, any quick observations about J.D. Davis
2: and the future of left field? John? Um, I'll answer that kind of two ways, Michael. Um, yeah, J.D. Davis looked like he was having some adventures out there, but Even more so, the person who plays into what he's doing in left field um, is um, Jeff McNeil. And I looked at his defensive performance over the weekend, and boy, did he have some challenges at third base, missing some balls and just throwing a ball away tonight. And uh, he looked really challenged at third base on what, what really I think should have been some routine plays for a major league ball player at third base. So will we eventually see a switch where McNeil goes to the, uh, another position and JD Davis moves back in at third base? Um, I think that has to be a consideration and a concern early here for Luis Rojas.
0: And can I also so, really quickly say that we've we wanted Jeff McNeil to settle in at third base. And we've been saying that, that, w uh, you know uh, I just forgot J d Davis needs to be in Westfield. field, but yeah, I really thought McNeil came around in the out I thought he looked spectacular in the outfield last year, so we we shouldn't discount the fact that McNeil has been uh historically over the course of his, his you know a year and a half of major league service uh fantastic everywhere we put him out there I, and I wonder whether a lot of this has to do with the fact that. You know, everybody's used to spring, which we all, including I think the players, think is a little too long, but we goes right into the season. you got eight months of baseball, basically. I think that, that could be a, a major issue right now, because they only played two games before starting the season.
1: I will ask you, gentlemen, if you have any outstanding issues. I think we covered everything about the three-game series and the opening of the season that was. Uh, otherwise, we're headed to Boston. So, John, I will ask you, any outstanding issues, comments, or rude remarks? <laughs>
2: yeah, comments. <laughs> uh, I do have one there, Michael, in terms of just, I think, you know, over a 60-game season, if you look back on this weekend at the end of the season, it could be a microcosm of who the Mets are in terms of winning a one nothing game, and then losing that game, that second game five to three, but they were one pitch away from winning that game. Um, the fourteen to one game, tonight's game, throw it out. But that second game is the one that really kind of I am stewing about because that changed the whole dynamic of the series. With one pitch, one change, one adjustment, the Mets could have won that series. And they didn't do it, but they need to make that correction and win those series consistently over this short season to be really competitive and uh, have a spot in the postseason. So that's what I'm going to be looking for. Can the bullpen slam the door when it's a one-run game and the tying runs and scoring position? Can they get that final out? Can they come up with a big hit? when they're down a run or in a tie game in a runner in scoring position, will they be able to do that? Will they be able to take advantage of a pitcher who's on the ropes like Newcomb was early tonight and really get on top of a team and change the momentum of the game? Those are the key points that are going to make the difference between are the Mets going to be competitive this year or not.
1: 57 games left, Sam. Uh, I'll just put that into the context of agree an agreement for extended playoffs. So the floor is yours, wherever you want to take that.
0: I don't think the Mets need to rest on their laurels and meaning don't depend on the fact that, you know, the, the extended playoffs could put you in there. Um, this, this, you know, that there's probably going to be one of these teams that we've been saying everybody needs to beat up on that could be in these playoffs because this is going to be some wacky shit the the, the uh, Nationals were 15 and 30, I believe. Something crazy like that, 19 and 30 over the first uh, um, 49 games last year, and are now the defending champions. So we, we could very well have the third Marlins World Series. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a psychotic kind of way,
1: it's great to be Arguing, debating, you know, over Mets baseball again. Uh, I'm appreciative of that. everybody's efforts on the field and the organizations, and all the collateral employees and everyone trying to make this happen. Uh, John, I thank you for your time. I thank you for returning uh, to the podcast, good friend of ours. Please take a second, uh,
2: reintroduce us with your work and your endeavors. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Michael. It's just, it's, it's an honor to hear both of your voices again. And like I said, at the start of the podcast, please give Rich my best as well. And I listen to you guys um, regularly. So, but it's great to be on talking with you and and being able to interact with you. So it's an honor for me just to, to be on and have a chance to talk Mets baseball with you. It's a joy for me. So, um, as far as what I'm doing, Mets Rewind is a uh, Mets historic site. That's what we focus on, um, you know, from 62 right on up to 2020. Um, history keeps redefining itself, and there's so many different angles and perspectives to look at uh, players and games and um, Mets history, for everything from players to coaches and managers and ownership and, with everything that's going on with the team, it's, it's exciting and fun. And I, I, I don't make a dime off doing it, but I it's a great joy for me to do and to be able to have the interaction with Mets fans who just kind of feed off a lot of the stuff is just um, some of the comments are just uh, what encourage me most and keep me going. So I'm grateful for everyone who follows Mets rewind. We are on Twitter at Mets rewind also on Facebook and Instagram with the same handle and you can find us on the web where we do some more long-form story writing where uh, it's you know not social media-based and it's, um gives us an opportunity to expand a little. So that's MetsRewind.com. But again, guys, thank oh. you so much for your time, and, and it's been an honor to talk with you tonight.
1: Well, the pleasure is ours. Uh, we do follow you, uh, speaking for Rich, Sam, and I, and I, I speak for myself when I say, uh, so enjoyable uh, I love you both, thank you as a math fan they're wonderful uh but if you don't mind, what
2: the hell's going on with Twitter, and why are they badgering you <laughs> that is a you know that is a great question Michael like um in turn, I remember what day it was. I think it was Monday, maybe even Sunday night of last week. um I got a direct message and it, at, at first when I opened it up, I thought this is probably just a piece of spam. And it was a short message, and it said um, to the effect that I had violated some policy, and if i if I were to I needed to read the policy and then agree to it by clicking the agree button um, was my witness that I would not violate the policy, but then the policy that they had me read was very generic and kind of looked like it was written by an attorney but didn't specify what the violation was. So um, I had no indication that I'm like, I'm not certain, I'm not doing anything that anyone else isn't doing. And when I do reference a third person, I give full credit. Or if I post a video, if it's, you know, from MLB advanced or whatever, all their logos and everything is intact. So I wasn't certain and I'm still not certain what the specific issue is because I just want to stay within the guardrails and the boundaries. I don't want to jeopardize my audience and I don't want to jeopardize my ability to do what I'm doing because I find great joy in it. So um, after I read that, I, um, I eventually deleted it the next day and then I went back and I'm like, I shouldn't have deleted that. I should have hung on to it. So I, I contacted uh, Twitter. And ask them if they would resend the direct message, and of course you know trying to get a hold of Twitter is like trying to get a hold of the president, so um, I just didn't have any luck I hope hopefully they'll respond again and send me the specifics of what the violation was, and uh, we can correct it. but I just wanted to let Met fans know that follow me on um, Twitter that if one day suddenly Twitter thought I was in violation of some policy that would be suspended if I did it again. And uh, so I just wanted to let them know that if I disappear, here's where you can find me. So um, it's kind of crazy. Never a dull day. 2020 has been something <laughs> else. I'll
1: tell you. Yeah. Uh, I have nothing more. Again, John, thank you for your time. Thank you for everything you Pleasure. do on Twitter with Mets Rewind. So enjoyable. Sam, I'm going to hand the baton yes. to you. Why don't you uh, take us home and wrap this up for us?
0: Well, I I just want to put out there that it's so nice to see baseball again. Uh, I, I even put out a tweet that, like, I, it doesn't matter that the Mets are down right now. I would still so much rather be in 515 trying to, to find some – Solace to of good to, to to why I'm still up here till the bottom of the night, uh, you know. And I think we need to understand that we're not out of the woodwork yet. We're not out of the woods yet. It's a woodwork. What, what, this is how late it is, right? Um, yeah. We're not out of, the, out of the woods yet with this whole a number of what, what was it? Miami Marlins players. I heard uh, the the radio booth talking about tonight uh, tested positive for COVID. So. You know, and and they they've got these they they have been planning that these are going to be positive at some points throughout the season. But the question is what's the threshold for when you're like, all right, this is we can't we can't get this done at all. Um and so, you know, every day we really have to cherish these games because we don't we're still not sure that this thing is gonna get you gonna be finished to completion. So let's go baseball and let's go Mets, huh? Well
1: said. Well said. Yes. Uh, to all our Mets listeners, we appreciate so much you listening and taking time out and, and checking out our podcast. So with that, we bid you safety, health, peace of mind in the days moving forward. So like Sam says, let's go Mets. John, thank you again. Good night,
0: everyone. Thanks, John. Pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. Let's go Mets, all Take care.